I'll invite you to please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. We'll be looking this morning, verses 1 through 8. Once you have located that, you may stand for the reading of God's Word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I. I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God and Father, as we open the book today, we pray that you would make it live to us. God, that the words would come off the page and enliven our hearts, awaken our souls, God, that you would teach us today. Speak to us, God. Transform us by the renewing of our minds. Oh God, grant me clarity of speech, purity of heart, passion and grace and humility to speak the word of God as I ought. Come now in these moments, God. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. You may be familiar, just a few years ago, back in 2019, there was a bit of a scandal regarding Democratic Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. It appears that at some point she had claimed to be of Cherokee Indian heritage. Turns out she isn't. There was a really controversial DNA test that showed that she had less than 1% of any Indian heritage at all and no way to prove that it was Cherokee. She eventually called the chief of the Cherokee Nation and had to apologize were claiming to be Indian. That makes me think of something. You claim to be a disciple of Jesus. But if you were given a test, would it reveal that you are what you claim to be? Or like Miss Warren, would you be shown that your claim was false. Today we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to begin a journey today through this Gospel together. Mark, also known as John Mark, is the author of this Gospel. But the words are Peter's. This is the account of the Apostle Peter telling uh, the life and ministry of Jesus and it is being written down by Mark. Like all of the Gospels, Mark records 
the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done to bring about salvation for God's people. But Mark's Gospel is not just a retelling of the facts about Jesus. Mark's Gospel is a call to discipleship. In this Gospel, as we're going to see through our journey, Mark presents, describes, and even defends the call of Jesus to follow Him. That's why I've entitled this series of messages Being a Disciple of Jesus. Because as we study Mark's Gospel, we're going to learn the details of what it means to be a disciple. What disciples look like? What is expected of disciples? How are we to live as disciples? We're going to learn about being disciples of Jesus from Mark's Gospel. Now, the place to start anywhere is at the beginning. So as we begin, the first question we need to answer is, who is a disciple of Jesus? To do that, we're going to look at the first eight verses of this chapter. Verse 1 is what we might call the title or the heading of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the starting point. Where, where the whole thing started. That's, that's basically what the whole book is about. In verses 2 through 8, we have a description of the ministry of John the Baptist. And what we're going to see as we look at these eight verses this morning, we're going to see that there are three things that mark a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, the Gospel has a lot to teach us. This book has so much to teach us about being a disciple. But first, we need to make sure you are a true disciple of Jesus. So there are three marks of a true disciple. Here's the first one. A disciple is convinced of the identity of Jesus. A disciple is convinced of the identity of Jesus. Look at verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You could say the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's what you need to recognize. At the center of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel revolves around who Jesus is and what He has done. That's why we can say it is the gospel of Jesus or the gospel about Jesus because the essence of the gospel is who Jesus is and what He's done. Now we see three things about Jesus in this text, in this verse. We see His name, His title, and His identity. And all of these help fill out for us who Jesus is. We see His name, Jesus. It means Yahweh saves, or God saves. That tells us that Jesus is Savior. In Mark chapter 1, verse 21, the angel is speaking to Joseph, whose fiancée Mary has shown to be with child. And the angel says to Joseph, she will bear a son, 
and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Savior from sin. Understanding who Jesus is begins with this. He is the one and only Savior from sin. But not only do we see His name, we see His title, Christ. This tells us that Jesus is King. Let me read you two verses that we preached from over the last couple of weeks. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When, when Mark says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's telling us is this Jesus is that king that God promised in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He is that child that would be born, that would occupy the throne of his David forever, throne of his father David forever, the one who would have an endless kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice. He's telling us this Jesus is that Christ, is that anointed one. He is that promised king. So to understand Jesus means to understand he is savior. He is king. And notice his identity. He is the son of God. This tells us Jesus is divine. What that means is he has the very nature of God. Let me give you a verse. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. That means Jesus is everything that God is. All the fullness of God is permanently at home in the person of Jesus. Jesus doesn't just speak for God. Jesus speaks as God. Jesus is Savior from sin. He is Christ. He is King. And He is the Son of God, which means He is divine. What are we saying? Jesus is God come to earth to save his people from their sin and to establish God's eternal kingdom. Listen, without this, there is no Christianity. No one, listen, no one who is not absolutely convinced of this can claim to be a disciple of Jesus. You may remember in Acts chapter 8 the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch is headed from Israel where he's been to worship in Jerusalem, headed back to Africa, to Ethiopia, where he works for Queen Candace, one of her officials. And he's reading from Isaiah. Philip has been sent there by the Holy Spirit of God. Philip comes up next to the chariot 
and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I if somebody doesn't explain it to me? Well, Philip gets up into the chariot. Verse 35 says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Philip preaches Jesus from Isaiah, tells this Ethiopian eunuch the story of Christ, preaches the gospel. And then the Ethiopian eunuch says this, Look, here's water. What would keep me from being baptized? And this was Philip's words. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went into the water and Philip baptized him. Here's what I want you to see. The man says, why can't I be baptized? Baptism means I want to identify as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to be a follower of this Jesus. I want to be a Christian. And Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. You see that? Before discipleship can be established, there has to be a genuine belief and conviction about who Jesus is. Listen to me. Discipleship is far more than information about Jesus, but it is never less. You must have a deep conviction of who Jesus is. Listen, you are saved by faith. Amen? But that's not just faith in general. It's not even faith in God that saves you. It's faith in the person of Jesus Christ that saves you. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him will not perish. Not whosoever believes in general, but whosoever believes in the person of Jesus Christ. A deep abiding conviction about Jesus and who He is. Now, when I talk about being convinced of the identity of Jesus, I'm not talking about just intellectual agreement. Yeah, I think that's true. Like you agreed it some facts are true, I'm talking about a conviction that reaches into the deepest part of your soul. You are absolutely convinced at the deepest part of you that Jesus is the only Savior from sin. That He is indeed the King of all kings. That He is indeed God in flesh. In your heart of hearts, are you absolutely convinced that Jesus is the only Savior? Are you absolutely persuaded that He is the King who will reign eternally over all? Have you come to believe and know, as Peter said, that He is the Son of the living God? A true disciple is someone who is willing to stake his entire life and eternity on the identity of Jesus. That's the first mark of a true disciple. Now let's talk about the second. A disciple has confessed and repented of sin. A disciple has confessed and repented of sin. When you come to verses 2 and 3, these are both quotes from the Old Testament. 
Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. Now both of these verses describe an event. They're describing the same event. It's a time when God had promised that He was going to come to His people, bring judgment against their enemies, and come and bring great salvation and deliverance to His people. What He's telling us here is, before He comes, He's going to send someone to prepare the people for His coming. Verse 2, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare the way. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. This is called the forerunner. And this comes from a, a practice in the Old Testament days. If a king or a monarch was going to be traveling to some region, he would send a forerunner. In other words, he would send someone ahead of him to prepare the road for his journey. If there were rough places in the road, he would smooth them out. If there were bridges that needed to be repaired, he would repair them. And he would go to the destination where the king was going and he would announce the king's coming and prepare the people to receive the king. So he's doing just what it said. He's preparing the way for the king. That's who John the Baptist is. What we're being told here is John the Baptist is performing the role of the forerunner. He is the one God said would go before his king who would come to his people. Now, the book of Malachi associates this forerunner with Elijah. Right? The Jews believe that before God, before the Messiah comes, Elijah's going to come. That comes from Malachi 3. If you look down in verse 6, you'll see it tells us John was clothed with camel's hair, wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and wild honey. We're told this information because these were descriptions of a prophet. Specifically, these are things that described Isaiah, excuse me, Elijah in the Old Testament. What Mark is doing is he's wanting us to equate Mark with the Elijah that God promised to send. What all that means is John the Baptist is performing this role of the forerunner to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord to bring salvation. Well, how does John prepare the people? Verses 4 and 5 tell us he prepares the people by preaching repentance. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea was going out to him. All the people were of Jerusalem, they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. The way John prepares the people for the coming of Christ is to preach Repentance. He's calling the people to acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, repent, and be baptized. What this baptism demonstrates is that they were turning away from their sin and seeking God's forgiveness. This prepared the people for the ministry of Jesus in a very important way. Here's what you need to understand. Many of the Jews thought that the Messiah was coming 
to deliver the people from Rome. But Rome was not the people's greatest enemy. The Messiah was coming to deliver the people from their greatest enemy, sin. You see, sin is what alienated the people from God, not Rome. Christ was coming to deliver the people, to save the people from their sin. That's why John is preaching the need for confession and repentance. In order to receive the ministry of Jesus, you have to be willing to acknowledge that you are guilty and sinful and separated from your sin. You have to be willing to turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus. Listen, a person who does not see his sin, acknowledge the reality of his guilt before God, that person cannot come to Jesus. Because to come to Jesus, you have to see your sin and be willing to turn away from it. Imagine this. Imagine a man has committed adultery. He wants to reconcile with his wife. But he also wants to keep his lover on the side. He wants to continue his affair, but he wants to reconcile with his wife too. What do you think the chances that are happening are? Yeah, none. In the same way, you can't turn to Jesus and hang on to your sin too. You got to be willing to confess it and repent of it. You have to acknowledge your guilt, turn away from it before you can turn to Jesus. That's why before these people could receive the ministry of Jesus, they had to acknowledge their need for a savior, that they were sinful and guilty. Let me ask you a question. Have your eyes been opened? to your sinful condition before God. Like Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of the Lord's robe filled the temple, Isaiah said, Woe is me. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people who, of unclean lips. When he saw God, his own guilt was so obvious to him. What about Peter? When, when Jesus told Peter to launch the boat out into the deep and cast out the nets, when the nets began to fill with fish, Peter fell on his face before Jesus and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Peter saw the reality of who Jesus is, he saw his sin so clearly. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever come to the place that it has dawned on you as clear as crystal that you are undone and guilty before God? Have your eyes been opened to the reality of your sin? Listen, has your heart been gripped by godly sorrow? See, it's one thing to know that you're a sinner, but it's a totally another thing to be grieved over the fact that you're alienated from God because of your sin. Oh, there's some people that know they're sinners and they may be sorry because they got caught doing something, but they don't really have what Corinthians calls godly sorrow. Second Corinthians. 
but they don't really feel what we call deep conviction about their sinful condition. Let me ask you, have your eyes been opened to your sin? Have you felt the deep conviction of God about your sin? Have you come to the place that you turn from it? That's repentance. To turn from your sinful condition to follow Jesus. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of direction. In a very practical sense, it means to stop doing bad and start doing good. Listen, have you come to a place of confession and repentance? That's the second mark of a true disciple. A, a, a disciple is convinced of the identity of Jesus. A disciple has confessed and repented of sin. Here's the third mark I want you to see. A disciple has experienced spiritual regeneration. A disciple has experienced spiritual regeneration. Now I know that's a word you don't hear much, but it's an important word. Regeneration is a word you need to know because it has significant meaning. Regeneration means to be given new life. If something is regenerated, it's given new life. This is what John chapter 3 calls being born again. Regenerated, given new life. It's when a person who is spiritually dead is made spiritually alive. That's regeneration. We refer to it most often as salvation. But it means to be regenerated. It means to be given new life. Now I want you to notice in verse 7. John was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. John is making it very clear here that Jesus is far superior to him. How much more superior is Jesus to John? He's saying he's so much more superior to me that I am not even worthy of unlatching his sandals. This would be the, the, the job of the most menial slave in the household. He said, I, I'm not worthy of doing even the, the job of a slave. I, I'm not even worthy of being his servant. He's that much more superior to me. Now, how do we see the superiority of Jesus to John? How does it show up? Verse 8, look at it. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was purely symbolic. When John baptized people, no spiritual transaction took place. It was their public acknowledgement of their sin and that they were turning from it in preparation for the Messiah. It was a demonstration that they were committed to repentance. But Jesus didn't come to baptize people in water. He came to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now what is that all about? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a, it's a picture of the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to give believers. Let me give you just a few scriptures. It was promised in the Old Testament that under the new covenant, God would give His Spirit to His people. Ezekiel 36, 
Verses 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is what God promised in the Old Testament. He was going to give his people his spirit, give them a new heart. This is regeneration. Make us new through the Holy Spirit. This is what John is telling us Jesus came to do, to baptize with the Holy Spirit. This is what John, the, the, not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle, in John 3 calls being born of the Spirit. John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born of water means to be cleansed of sin. Water is the picture of cleansing. To be born of the Spirit means to be given the Spirit. You see, being born again is being cleansed of sin and filled with the Spirit of God. That's what John is telling us Jesus came to do. Baptism of the Spirit is the moment of salvation when you're cleansed of sin, filled with the Spirit of God, and given life spiritually. Now I want you to notice something in verse 8. I baptized you with water. He, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Who is the one performing the action at the end of verse 8? He will baptize you. Who's the one doing that action? Jesus. So when you're regenerated, when you're made new spiritually on the inside... Who is the one doing it? Jesus. Boy, you listen to this. That means your salvation is not something you do. It is something Jesus does. If all you got is what you did, you didn't get saved. You may have walked an aisle, you may have prayed a prayer, you may have been baptized... But unless Jesus did something in you, you didn't get saved. Salvation is regeneration. It's being made new spiritually, and that's something Jesus has to do to you. This is what Jesus promised the disciples in the upper room. You remember? In the upper room, the night of the Lord's Supper, He said, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. It's what took place on the day of Pentecost after Jesus was crucified 50 days later when the Spirit of God came upon them and they began to preach and 3,000 people were saved. That's this baptism of the Spirit regeneration. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit of God to those who believe and it makes them new on the inside. Let me give you a verse. Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happens. We are regenerated, cleansed from sin. The Spirit of God comes into us and transforms us from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We are regenerated. Robert Coles is a renowned child psychologist. He taught a graduate class at Harvard University. 
and he told the story about another very famous psychiatrist who had come to talk to him, and this is what he said. A highly regarded psychiatrist recently told me in despair, I have been doing therapy with a man for 15 years. He is as angry, as self-centered, and as mean as he was the first day he walked into my office. The only difference is that now he knows why he is so angry and mean. The psychiatrist had helped his client to discover how his emotional wounds during his childhood had caused him to be dysfunctional as an adult. In other words, he helped him to see what happened to him as a kid had left him screwed up as an adult. He helped him to see it. He helped him to understand why he was the way he was. But here's the thing. The man still hadn't changed. He knew why he was broken. But he was still broken. This is what Dr. Cole said to his students when he told that story. Couldn't we conclude that what this man needed wasn't just information, but transformation? To be a disciple, you must have a certain amount of information about Jesus. But listen to me. Information doesn't make you a disciple. Transformation does. Information doesn't make you a disciple. Transformation does. Have you been transformed? Have you been made new on the inside? That's regeneration. That's what makes a true disciple of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Old things are gone. All things are made new. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Let me ask you a question. I don't want to know if you've been informed about Jesus. I want to know if you've been transformed by Jesus. Have you been transformed by Jesus? Are you different? Because Jesus did something on the inside of you that you can't explain. He's made you new. He's given you life. A disciple is someone who has been made new on the inside by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Are you a true disciple of Jesus today? Are you convinced of the identity of Jesus? Have you confessed and repented of your sin? Have you been spiritually regenerated, made new? Let me put it all together and give it to you like this. A disciple of Jesus is someone who believes, repents, and is made new. A disciple is someone who believes and repents and is made new. Do you see the evidence of all of those things in your own life? D.A. Carson is a very well-known theologian and Bible scholar and author, preacher. And years ago, when he was in college, 
he led an evangelistic Bible study intended for you know people who are interested in Christianity. And he confessed that sometimes he would get a little out of his league. And when he did, he would take the skeptics and the doubters to a, to a guy on campus who was known as a very bold witness. His name was Dave. And uh, one particular time, D.A. Carson encountered one young man who was, he was having trouble, you know, trying to answer his questions. So he took him to Dave. And this is what the young man said to Dave. I came from a family that doesn't believe in a literal resurrection and all that stuff. That's just a bit much for us. But we're a fine family, a good church-going family. We love each other, care for each other, and we do good in the community. We're a stable family. So what have you got that we don't have? Dave looked at this young man, and this is what he said. Watch me. Move in with me. I have an extra bed. Just follow me around. You see how I behave, what's important to me, what I do with my time, the way I talk. You watch me. And at the end of three months, you tell me there's no difference. Well, the young man declined to take Dave up on his offer, but he did keep coming back to watch the way Dave lived and to find out why Dave was different. And eventually this young skeptic, this young man who didn't believe in the resurrection, finally came to Christ and actually went on to become a medical missionary. What's the point? The point is, there's a world of difference between, good, between being good church-going folks and being a real disciple of Jesus. There's a world of difference between being good church-going folks and being a real disciple of Jesus. Now let me ask you this. If a skeptic was going to watch you, would he know the difference? Would he be able to see that there's more to being a Christian than being just good church-going folks? Would he see a genuine conviction about the person of Jesus? Would he see a life that practices confession and repentance? Would he see someone who's been transformed? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Let's pray.